Before we get to the podcast this week, do not forget, if you are a Dirt on Dirt subscriber, you have access to all of Flow Racing as well. All 1,000 plus live events, all the amazing content from the Chili Bowl to the World 100 to the All-Stars Live to USAC Live to all the Ray Cook races live to Flow Racing Night in America Live, all of that and so much more. One $150 price tag, and that gets you access to both sites, DOD and Flow Racing. That is, I feel pretty confident saying this, the best deal in all of short track racing. DOD and Flow, all for one price of $150. It's as good as it gets. All right, let's go. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is your Rigsby Report podcast for the week of April 12th, and we have reached episode 15 of the podcast already, and I hope you've noticed the uptick in regularity, as I promised you earlier in the year. I'm shooting for two of these a month, uh, and I started that promise in March, so we'll hit about north of 20 Rigsby Reports on the year, and today it is the one and only Larry Moore. You know, the 14 other guys that I've interviewed so far, I obviously do research on, but I also had a really good grasp on them and their careers. But it was a little different with Larry. You know, I was born in 1982, so much of his career had already happened by the time I was old enough to start paying hardcore attention at the age of seven or eight. So it wasn't just a a knee-jerk reaction on things for me to naturally ask him. There was plenty that I had to dive into and look from experiences outside of my own to kind of get a grasp on what do I need to ask Larry Moore or what do I want to talk to Larry Moore about. But when you've got really good friends like Bob Marcos, who is the greatest dirt track historian of all time, Dave Argerbright, who literally wrote the book on Larry Moore, and uh, Larry's good friend Rich Mercero, guys like that, I owe all three of them a huge thank you for helping me sort of dive into the mind and career of Larry Moore. Uh, Bob, Dave, and Rich, thank you all seriously very much. You guys were awesome help for this. And a note that I have to add about Larry, you hear the term larger than life a lot, but you don't even know what that means until you really start diving into the life of Larry Moore. Every story is more unbelievable than the last. Every twist and turn is just... It's a tall tale, basically. It's like a fable. But then I'd dive into it, and I'd confirm with other people, no, it's not a tall tale. It actually did happen. He's a person I could have spent four hours on the phone talking to about a life that was part rock star, part um, racing star, part tragic figure in some ways, part superhero. You realize there is so much more to him than just a guy that was one of the most successful race car and dirt late model drivers of all time. This guy should be in the Smithsonian of interesting characters. He's that fascinating. It's hard to capture all of that in a podcast. We did give it our all. And as always, you know, Larry lights up a room and he's he's been doing that now for four to five decades. It's a solid hour, hour and 20 minutes with Larry Moore as only he can be totally unfiltered uh, coming up. But first, I have a few thoughts. This past weekend, the Final Dirt Late Model event of 2021 has happened at Bristol. Back in March, the first event was there, and then the World of Outlaws event was there this past weekend, leaving only the sprint cars at this point left there in a few weeks, the World of Outlaws sprint cars. And I wanted to make an admission on the podcast about Bristol, an admission 
about something I was wrong about. I was wrong about the fact of how many people care about Bristol. And let me explain what I mean by that. By that, There is certainly, whether it was the first event or this most recent World of Outlaws event, there was certainly an amount of buzz about Bristol that I just did not anticipate, whether it was on social media or as evidenced by the 700-plus drivers across all divisions that showed up to the first event there, or just general buzz, I think I, no, I know that I underestimated the lust for guys to compete there. Keep in mind, I was there 20 years ago the first time they did it, the first time they put dirt on it. I saw the 50,000-plus people that were there. Of course, 20 years ago, there was a lot more people than they had for either one of these two events this year. But I saw the energy over two decades ago, so I knew that there were folks who cared about it, but I flat out did not anticipate the level of Bristol chatter and Bristol lust, and I think I'm using that term right, lust, that happened this time around. I just didn't see it. I think part of it for me is I am not, admittedly, a NASCAR fan at all. I don't really feel ashamed to admit that. I'm just not a guy that has ever really cared about NASCAR. I've been to NASCAR events. I know many folks in NASCAR, but for whatever reason, it just never has appealed to me. I say that to mean I think I'm in the minority of dirt track fans and folks who truly love NASCAR. They love the heritage and the history of it and what it means to motorsports. And I think that's part of the reason so many people, those dirt track fans, wanted to be part of the events at Bristol. For me personally, it was, eh, it's kind of cool. And for the vast majority of racers, it was, and I'm not just talking dirt late model guys here, but for the vast majority of racers, it was, holy hell, we have to do anything we can to get to Bristol. Let's mortgage our entire season, in some cases, to go there and race. I did not see that coming. I thought it would be above average interest for sure, but not sort of that lose your mind interest that we saw. I love to point out when I'm right about something, so I will gladly point out here I was wrong about something. More people cared about Bristol and competing there especially uh, than I thought would. Now, having said all that, I still think the place, the track, the speeds, especially the destruction of many cars we saw over the past several weeks are a grim reminder that dirt cars are not really meant to be there. Some people have said, well, what's the difference between Eldora and Knoxville? You're going to go fast there too. And literally every single dirt driver that I have talked to said, Eldora and Knoxville are not even the same planet as this place. The G-forces, the way it makes you sit down in the seat, the things you have to do to your car, and not to mention when you hit at Bristol, you hit big. It's not even close to the same as Eldora and Knoxville. Remember, back in 2000, 189 late models were there in year one. 89 late models were there in year two. And we just completed a World of Outlaws event where 29 cars were there for 25000 to win. I think the, the late model guys, by and large, have said, okay, yeah, this place is it's just too much borderline slash not worth it for us on equipment. When... Dirt races get scheduled there next year, and I do think there will be other than NASCAR, there will be other dirt races. I do think they're going to fade in there. That lust will fade a little bit next year. But for the time being, a major tip of the hat to those at Bristol and those involved for all of the events that were put on there for realizing that heat, that lust, that desire was out there for people to compete at the half mile. And I'm glad so far, you know, nobody's been injured. 
Nobody's been hurt. Everybody's by and large has been been kept safe, and I think that's the most important thing. So I just wanted to get that off my chest and, and hit on Bristol a little bit more than I had so far, a little deeper. One last point really quickly. It does look like night one of Castrol Flow Racing's Night in America will finally kick off Thursday night at Tyler County. Our driver lineup looks really good, too. The weather, of course, it's like 65 every day, but Thursday. It is in the upper 50s, so we'll be okay. Um, and, you know, Tyler County, when it's right, is one of the best racetracks in the country. We are excited to get things going this week. Night one of our midweek miniseries, the first of 10, kicks off with the Castrol pre-race show at 6 o'clock Central. Derek and I will be in the studio as we're going to have a lot of fun. All 10 nights this year, it's just going to be a shit ton of fun doing these 10 races, and that starts Thursday night at the Baddest Bullring in West By God, Virginia, Tyler County Speedway. Thank you to the Watson family for hosting the opener. Okay, let's get to it. Larry Moore. One consistent thing that ends up in my Twitter feed and in my email are suggestions, suggestions of people to interview for the Rigsby Report. They're pretty wide-ranging, typically, but if I had to pick the most consistent name I get... It's today's guess, particularly from the older generation who knows what I think everybody else is about to find out, that the most interesting man in the world isn't the guy from that beer commercial, but it's the guy on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline now, late model Hall of Famer, short track legend, and my guest on episode 15, Larry Moore. Larry, you are 78 years old right now. You're living in Ohio, just outside of Dayton. And my first question for you is one that I'm really looking forward to hearing you answer. What does an average day at the age of 78 look like for Larry Moore? From the time you get up in the morning, Larry, until the time you go to bed at night, what is Larry Moore up to in an average day? (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Well, about every day I talk to somebody about racing. I just do it almost every day. Somebody calls me and asks me questions and stuff, and uh, and I try to answer them to the best of my ability. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you out tinkering in the lawn, Larry? Are you watering flowers? What you know? Are you are you doing some domestic things too, or no? Yes, I'm. I'm getting really into that now. In the spring, we got some flowers out behind and all that, and we have to keep up with that. But that's not a real big deal. <laughs> I've always did it all my life. <laughs> I have a feeling you said you talk to somebody every day about racing. Those are usually three and four hour conversations, aren't they? Though these aren't thirty minute conversations. I have a feeling. No, sometimes they're not, but ten or fifteen okay. because they knew I keep up on most everything. So. They ask me a few questions and stuff, and I try to fill them in to the best of my ability. You know, you segued to my next question perfectly. I know you told me last week that you talked to Scott Bloomquist recently. He picked up the phone and asked you some questions about his race cars. We'll talk more about that in a second. But you kind of just hit on it. How much attention, Larry, do you pay to the current world of dirt late model racing and just racing in general? Are you wildly up on it are you as active as paying attention to it as you were 25 years ago or or what is your level of attention to racing right now in 2021 well probably not quite as much as it was years ago but i mean i'm still up on you know what's going on and what's happening and why they're doing what i realize what they're doing what hardly nobody does that i know of yeah, and I th- just that's just your eye for it, right? I mean, you you can spot things none of the rest of us can. <laughs> well, what they're doing now, everybody goes. Uh, you notice what they're doing now? I said, sure. Well, 
What would happen if you did that back then? Well, back then, we had an 18-inch first floor and 18-inch sideboards <laughs> and huge long quarter panels. So you didn't, you couldn't do what they're doing now. Now they're trying to make an 8-inch first floor into an 18 and the long quarter panels into what we already had. So you couldn't do that if we did. The car just, well, front wheels would come off the ground. But <laughs> I know, I, I realize about that a lot of people don't. <laughs> tell, tell me about that conversation with Scott. What what did Scott Bloomquist want when he called you? And what did you guys talk about? He just asked me about general everything. You know, he was trying to get faster, and he just wanted to know he wanted to talk to me a while, and we did. And then we got onto the rear ends and talking about the uh, lock, unlocked rear ends and all that. And so I went through him all that because I, in my racing career, I went through all that about the locked and unlocked and and and, and the different kinds of rear ends. Yes. <laughs> do you think he, Larry, when you got off the phone with him, do you think he took some of that? I have no doubt and applied it. He's a little bit faster right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yes. Have you had a close relationship with him through the years? Have you guys? What was your relationship? No, no, not that much, but a, a little every now and then. He's he's a great racer, and a and and if you watch him, the car doesn't wiggle, wobble, and carry on like most people. He's real, real smooth. There are people that are going to listen to this interview and not truly appreciate uh, just because they're too young the greatness of Larry Moore. Obviously, you're a three-time World 100 winner. You're instrumental in the NDRA becoming what it was. You're, you are a late-model legend, but you also won over 100 asphalt races. You know, you're a USAC pavement guy. You won races at the Milwaukee Mile. And I think from where I sit, you're the greatest dual-threat driver of the 20th century, asphalt and dirt. And, and when I really dove into, oh. your, when I dove into your career, Larry, and I mean that, I think there was a period of time where you were really rubbing elbow, elbows with some folks that would go on to become, I think, NASCAR legends. And I wanted to dive into this with you a little bit. Was there that pathway for you to get to NASCAR, Larry? Was it ever close? And do you think about that often? Like, it seemed like maybe there was a chance there at one point. Take me through that a little bit. Well, yeah, I don't really dwell on that kind of stuff, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. I just don't dwell on that. But at the same time, I was working as a crew chief in Charlotte, and I went over to, oh, what was the name of the restaurant? Doggone it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there was there was Dick Trickle there. And I walked in, and he walked over and said, hey, how are you? And we was talking and talking. and And so he really and he said Larry he said if you did what I did and went NASCAR racing you'd be very very rich right now and I go oh, I know but I didn't <laughs> you know but I've thought of it quite often was it for you Larry was there ever because I know you know you knew so many important players in NASCAR back in the day and stuff and you you were you know quite frankly beating them on on asphalt tracks was there ever a moment like where it got close for you back in the day Close to doing what? Close to actually becoming a NASCAR, going, becoming a NASCAR driver. Oh yes, uh, they they was at times, yes. And I and I was really dumb for not doing it, but I I don't know. I didn't. I thought about it, and I didn't know for sure if I could conform to their rules. You know. Well, and that's and one everything thing, that they're doing. When I researched you, that's one thing somebody told me. They said, "There's one thing Larry Moore is not. He ain't going to kiss anybody's ass." 
And to be a NASCAR driver at that point in time, you had to kiss a lot of ass. Is that fair to say you were not going to kiss ass <laughs> at that point in time? Well, I've looked at that, and that may be true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. One thing I know you touched on in your book with Dave Argerbright was that you, you know, you lamented, you, you I don't, I don't want to say regret, but some of the decisions you made at certain points in your career. Was there one decision, Larry, that you made at any point in your career that you think, ah, yeah, I should have done that a little differently? Is there one that sticks out to you? Well, no, I don't dwell on those things, but there, I'm sure there is, you know what I mean? Because I would have been a lot richer if I'd have went NASCAR racing. I just chose not to. I, I was just so busy in NDRA, you know, it came along and it was wonderful. And I did all that. And that was about the time I really needed to go, you know, NASCAR racing, but I didn't. So anyway, it's, it's just the way it is. You know, I didn't do that. You're kind of sorry at the same time, but I'm, you know, it, it is what it is. But you're, I think I can say it. You're better than some of those guys that went to NASCAR. Don't you think? I think you are and were. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's possible. Until you do it, though, you never know for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, your your childhood and your upbringing are so fascinating to me. You know, Dave Argerbright, such a good historian about this. You know, you lose your father at an early age, and your mother was very affected by that. You know, you're basically raised by your aunt and uncle, Larry. Uh, and they were, you know, a pretty conservative, pretty religious family in Indiana, and, of course, at a young age, you go out and you decide, I'm going to start racing st- stock cars. And I'm not sure, Larry, there's a more of a contrast in lifestyles than a religious conservative household and late nights at the short tracks across <laughs> America. Those are pretty yeah. – how, how much did those two things clash for you, Larry? Your, your home life that's pretty religious and conservative. And listen, I've been to plenty of dirt tracks. How much did those things clash early on? Well, they really did, but – you know, it's really something that, uh, you know, I, my mother and father took me to basketball practice, for instance, you know, and baseball or, or in the track and all that, but they never watched me play because it was unorderly or it was not in their belief to watch that, but they would go and take me to and pick me up, but they never participated in, in my stuff. <clears throat> they didn't do that quite different in life. I mean, that's really, really something. They were wonderful people, though. Oh, they were Baptist. My family were, and so was the people that raised me. And what did they think when you took on this racing lifestyle, right? I mean, if they didn't if they didn't want to watch you play basketball, I'd imagine that the nights at the racetrack were probably off limits, too. <laughs> yes, they never seen me race. So not one time. <laughs> the family that raised you, not one time, never saw you race? Not one time did did my family. My brother came and see me and my sister one time, uh, and a couple brothers. Um, Elry seen me race at uh, Trenton, New Jersey, in USAC stock car race, and that was the race that I beat AJ Foyt in. Yeah, <laughs> now, we're going to talk about AJ <laughs> Foyt in a little. But, but I got to imagine that was hard, though, right? I mean, to to not you know you they supported you, of course, but you know to not have him at the racetrack and that, that had to be difficult for you, I'd imagine. Well, it did. Looking back and stuff, it's really, it was really a difficult time in my life to realize, you know, what other parents felt about them. They'd hug them and say hi. And I, I mean, I'm sure Ori and Eileen, you know, 
appreciated me and all that, but it still was not the same. They just didn't really, um, uh, they just didn't really show the same, uh, same things that the other parents did and in my life. You know, my parents have been divorced and I know that I, you know, I kind of carry that with me, um, throughout my life. I, I'd imagine that that affects still, you know, you're 78. The, that still affects you. I would imagine. No, no, I'm all over that, and and, and I'm fine with that. Yes. <laughs> well, no, I'm only no 39, problem. so maybe I'll get maybe <laughs> it'll get better for me. 39. <laughs> the older I get, did uh, you, um, Larry? Did you ever ask him to come to the races? Did you say, "Come on, guys, I know this isn't. I know you don't approve of this racing, but come on, could you come out to the racetrack and watch me at Eldora or someplace?" I'm sure you asked him, right? No, no, it was just unheard of. I knew better they wasn't going to come, so it wasn't, no. And no, I did not ask them to come and see me race. Wow. And that was that was your aunt and uncle, is that correct, after your father passed well, away? Well, it was Ori and Eileen, and they were distant relatives. They were, okay. distant co- they were cousins, Ori was, and uh, they couldn't have any children, and they raised me. I was born and raised on a farm, huge, great, big farm. So, you know, I was a farm kid, and but I knew how to weld. I mean, they taught me how to weld, and, yeah. and I welded, and I did all kinds of mechanical work. Then that helped me in my racing. You started racing in the early <laughs> 60s in Indiana around where you were born. Uh, you're successful in stock cars right away. You moved more to eastern Indiana earlier in your career. And you started traveling across the state line to this place called Eldora in Ohio. And other than maybe Jack Hewitt, I don't know that anyone is more associated with Eldora than you. But I've heard some stories that, you know, we think of Eldora in its current form, that Eldora in its first few years was a, was a little different place. What was Eldora like in the early years, Larry? Yeah, it was quite different. It was banked lots more. Really? It was really banked lots more. And it was banked parabolic, meaning it's banked more going up to the wall, top wall. And over the years, you know, there were a lot of people killed and hurt on that place, especially in the sprint car days. And so Earl, um, finally, he decided to take some banking out of it and stuff because the insurance was on him and, and everybody was on him or a lot of people were on him about, you know, the dangerous part. So he took a lot of that parabolic out of it. I liked it before, but it's still at the same time, it's better to pass today. You know, Eldora has this reputation as being, you know, I I, I don't know if clean cut is the right word, but certainly with Tony at the helm, it's a little more clean cut. I've heard Eldora was a little rough and tumble back in the 60s. Is Is that true? Do you have any good rough and tumble Eldora stories in its early days? Oh, yeah. I don't know about stories, but yes, they were, they were, uh, it was, it was really, um, wide open and somewhat rough and but it was really really challenging you know to run against the fence all the way around and it was so it was quite different did you know at that point in time that eldora would go on to become eldora right like say you're racing there in the late 60s it's the most famous dirt track in the world now did you guys have any idea at that time man this place is going to be the most famous dirt track in the world <laughs> Well, kind of, because Earl Baldus. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I call it Earl Dora. But <laughs> Earl Baldus was such a tremendous, uh, different person. I mean, he was on your tail, you know, no matter whether he was 
A.J. Floyd or, or whoever or Larry Moore, he was on you. you know, he didn't show any favoritism, you know. So it was really it was really something different to race at Eldor Speedway and put up with his stuff because it was – but he was very wonderful. He was the same person with A.J. Floyd as he was with Hewitt or Larry Moore. What was your relationship with him like on a personal level, Larry? You and Earl Baltus. What was that personal relationship like? At times we were we were battling, you know, together. Because I raced for Darrell Woodbury from Union City, Indiana, which was really close, and, and and his cars raced there way before I did, and sprint cars and such. So, yeah, they they was already battling. Plus, he knew that 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 Darrell Woodbury had as much money as he had. Well, <laughs> that didn't suit him very well. So he was always in my, he was always on my, you know, always trying to make a big deal out of it. But I never, you know, I just learned to go with the flow, you know. You had to you had to put up with it, you know. Wouldn't he do stuff like want to start you at the tail of events, Larry? Didn't like Earl kind of like mess with you and say, all right, you know, you're, you're too good. You're starting at the bad. Wasn't there stuff like that happening? <laughs> yeah, I'd won so many races. He said, okay, you're going to start on the tail. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that make you feel? Oh, I thought it was really great because I said I can, I can, you know, and then he's, Start me one lap down. How about that one? What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. He made you start a lap down? Yes. Hey, what what <laughs> rate do you remember? He made you remember? start on a tail while I easily won the race. The caution come out. You yeah. know, the first race they did that, caution didn't come out, and I run second. So I passed everybody in up to second. And then then the next week, he he's run me a lap down. I'd run 26 laps, and everybody else 25. Can you imagine that? Did you win though? Did you did you win that race? Yes. Oh, yes, I got around. Yep, my one. Did you get like a bounty yep. or anything? Extra cash? I mean, yeah, I think he gave me extra hundred dollars. Oh, Earl, come on, man. He could have done better. He could have done better than that. Oh, I know, but that was way way back when it, you know five hundred to win was big. You know, yeah. so he paid me six hundred maybe. <laughs> You know, I think about a kid like Bobby Pierce right now. Larry, he will go his entire yeah. life. And I have a feeling that the cars he'll race his entire life will basically be pretty similar. You know, the modern dirt late model isn't going to change much. But I think about you. In the early 60s, you're driving true stock cars. Then you go through the Ed Howe, you know, C.J. Rayburn, all that era. And then on to, the, you know, the Bobby Master Allen. Bill. Yeah, Master, all the Bobby Allen car that you drove. You know, I saw you race that at Brownstown yeah. and places. You have basically sat in every version of a dirt late model ever. Uh, maybe other than Delmas Conley and maybe C.J. Rayburn. Are you the only person on the planet that can say that, Larry, that you've sat in every single one of those cars, basically? <laughs> yes, probably. That's that's for sure. I drove, I drove so many different kinds of cars, it was unbelievable. Well, and just yes. When you look at that, I mean, I'd have to imagine not only are you proud of that, but you've seen the evolution, haven't you? And take me through that evolution from the stock car you raced in Warsaw, Indiana, to Bobby Allen's late model at the end. How would you even describe the evolution of that car, Larry? Well, that's hard to really explain. I mean, I don't know. I can't think right now what the biggest words would be about that. 
I don't. I don't know. I can't. I. I don't know. I'm lost. <laughs> but I, I, I'd say it's pretty different, right? That first car in Warsaw, Indiana, compared to Bobby Allen's super late model. I, how? I mean, how different is that, right? It's pretty different, I'd imagine. Oh yes, absolutely. That's for sure. Yep. Am I? Yep. Am I right? Way back in the day, I. Way back in the day, I run those, you know, stock cars and stuff, and 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 we ra- I raced '55 Chevrolets and '57 Chevys, and then. And then, um, um, what's his name from Tri-County Speedway? He he decided he wanted to run newer stuff, so he paid extra dollars for you run brand new, you know, to new stuff. And then, and then, of course, Earl Balls came along and did the same thing, where he would pay you extra to have a new car. They wanted to get rid of the 55, 57, 56, 57 Chevrolets and Fords. That's what they were doing, and they did. When Ed Howe and Rayburn and those guys first came along, what did you think of those guys and what, what they were doing to develop what would go on to become what we have now? What, what were your honest thoughts about those guys? Well, I learned lots and lots with Ed Howe. I mean, I raced with Ed Howe on dirt and pavement, at pavement first and then dirt. And so we became really good friends way, way back. In fact, he didn't even want to talk to nobody. You'd call up there, and at that time, Herb Brin answered the phone. He was his partner. He's the one that answered the phone, and occasionally he'd say, well, I got something different for you, Larry. Ed wants to talk to you, and he don't even like to talk to nobody (laughs) 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 on the phone. So he said, I got to transfer you to him. He wants to talk to you. And then we would talk, and him and I were really, really good friends. I mean, we really, he was way different kind of guy for sure. (laughs) <laughs> did did anybody question like him and Rayburn though? Like, oh, this stuff's crazy. It'll never work. What they're trying to do was that was that being said around the garages at all? No. Well, I mean, I don't know. I didn't listen to none of it anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> I sure didn't. I need to tell you about about a gentleman that helped my racing career tremendously, sure. and his name was Billy Howell. Okay. I was working at a Chevrolet garage, and, and I lived in Greens Fork, Indiana, and his wife was from Greens Fork. So I was very fortunate that one day I was I was running a, a Sunoco station on a Sunday, and I'd bring my car down the alley, and I'd work it on in, in there. And he showed up, and his wife was from Greens Fork, Indiana. Now, he was from Detroit, you know what I mean? He was from – Yeah. And, and and he was the main guy in Chevrolet. He was the main guy. Wow in Chevrolet racing. And so here he's got a Corvette. I looked in there and an all aluminum small block in it. A few months later, he had an all aluminum big block in it. So I would see that and it was all looked like Detroit. Didn't look like California. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't all chromed and all that. It looked like it was from production line. It was unbelievable. I got to know him. I worked at a Chevrolet garage in Richmond, Indiana. I was a, I was a mechanic, and I worked on Corvairs, and I worked on Corvettes, both, in my life. So I learned a lot there. But when I run into Billy Howe, boy, that really picked up. I mean tell you, he informed me of a lot of – and they had a lot of great things that they didn't even tell people about, you know. They, were, they just were not informative about some of the stuff they had. And, how, and old I, would you, how old would you have been when you met Billy, Larry? How old, how old would you have been? Wow, that's hard for me to probably twenty five or twenty six years old. Okay, okay. So you'd been racing for a little bit then when you'd met him. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know if that long. I, yes, I was that age probably because, yep, yep, probably so. Okay. <laughs> it, it, I, but he was a great big force in my life. And, in fact, some years later he came and seen me race at this race. And i got to tell you about this. <clears throat> we went to Mount Clemens, Michigan. And we broke down on the way up there, so we had to get towed in or one of our tow straps with with uh, Don Thompson. I was driving his uh, Monte Carlo uh, stock car, and anyway, I'd been winning a lot in it. And but this was in 1971, and we went to Mount Clemens, Michigan. That was real close for Billy Howe, and he showed up there. Well, they said that they you couldn't run these little 11-inch tires. And the driver was all bitching about, but the track owner was going to them. You had to run them after the Fourth of July, and this was before that. So I came with the big wide tires, and I went out, and we got there late, so I didn't do any practice, and I went qualified, and I qualified 20th. Ooh. Billy Howe. <laughs> Billy Howe seen me turn every jack bolt, turn, change the gear in the rear end, change all the tires, move, you know, just do everything different, put the car all back like, you know, I had been running it with them 11-inch Firestones and the Hoosiers and, and what Firestones at that time. And so, anyway, when I switched it all back to Miltaz, Billy couldn't believe it. And we went out and started that race without a practice session. We changed, <laughs> I changed all our car around. <laughs> and we went out, and it took me – I was qualified 20, so I started 20, and it took me 20 laps to get in the lead. And then I lapped everybody. Oh, gee. You know, every, you know how many Larry Moore stories I've heard started with? Well, he had a terrible day to start, and then he ended up lapping everybody. I've heard that like no less than 20 yeah. times. <laughs> I, that, what you said about Billy is interesting to me because I hear, you know, I hear from a lot of people I talk to you about, Larry, and they said, you know, everybody mm-hmm. thinks that Scott Bloomquist obsesses over the parts on his car, but Scott doesn't hold a candle to Larry. I was told stories of you holding up bolts. And expect you know inspecting the thread millimeters. You were sleeping under the car. Where did that come from? That obsession. And and I think quite frankly, I can say this confidently: no one understood their race car more than you. You knew every part and piece on it. Where did that come from, Larry? Well, I don't really know. I'm trying to think. I don't know what that come from. It's just that. My whole life, I was obsessed about every part of the race car. Yeah. I don't think anybody was obsessed about it as much as I was. So that's the big thing. I didn't think it was that much different in my life. It's just the way I did. I mean, I was very fortunate to to be that way, of course. What, why I don't do know you, if I explained that at all. No, <laughs> no, and I think that's fair. And how do you think, and this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. How do you think that helped you? And it seems obvious, right? But I'd like to hear from you. How did that help you? You knew every part and obsessed. How did that help you when you hit the racetrack? Well, I didn't know everything, you know what I mean? I just think I know, I I studied and and everything better than most people. I did, so I was, you know, they said, oh, he knows everything. Well, believe me, he don't know everything. I didn't know everything, but I was way ahead of almost everybody. You know, to the point of you knowing those pieces on your race car, you were famous a little bit for, I'm going to call it bending the rules, I'm going to say, just bending them a little bit. One guy told me, this was a great quote I heard about Larry. It said, Larry Moore would walk up to the line, like where the the line in the sand was for the rules. He'd step over it. He'd, he'd think about it for a second. He'd dance around a little bit. He'd take one more look, 
and then he'd hop back across, meaning, you know, you pushed the rules a little bit. You've, you've been out of the game long enough, Larry. Give me two or three great examples of Larry Moore bending the rules on his race car. <laughs> Help me out. Don't keep any secrets. Well, I'm not going to talk about me bending the rules. I'm talking about that, you know, I just, I never got caught at it. So I learned <laughs> to study what they're checking for. So my mechanics and stuff, oh, we got to do this. I said, just shut up. I'll figure out what can we do, what we can do and not do. Not you. You don't understand what. And so I was into what they're checking for, what you're going to be caught for. I studied that big time, so I didn't get caught. Did you I ever, didn't get caught bending did, the rules. Did you ever get close to being caught? Oh, every week. <laughs> <laughs> every week, but I did not get caught cheating. What's your uh, what's your I can't ever remember. Now I may have, but I can't ever remember it. What's a, give me give, give me one good example of something that you were okay, these guys are going to be checking for this, so we're going to modify or we're going to change or do this. Give me one good example of something. Like you said, you didn't get caught, but what's something you you kind of you scoped it out and knew they weren't going to check for? Give me an example. Well, <clears throat> running running uh, ASA and 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 all that there was a lot of times when an all aluminum engine wasn't legal. So I would find out about that and what they were, you know, so I studied, you know, I watched out what they're going to do. So when, when, you know, I knew they was going to come and check me, I had a steel block motor in the car. And they'd come and they just knew Larry Moore was got a aluminum motor in the car. I just had a week before and I did a week after because at that time, they just check very now, not, not rather inconsistently. You yeah. know what I mean? They didn't do it as a, as a, so just constantly I was, they would come and check me and they'd stick that magnet down on a block and they'd go clunk. <laughs> and, and <laughs> so we thought you had all on the engine. I said, what? Are you stoned or stupid? <laughs> so there was, I was very good at uh, I was very good at not getting caught. Uh, that my coworker here says to me all the time, "Are you stoned or stupid?" He asks that question all the time, so I'm going to have to tell him that that Larry Moore <laughs> uses that line. He'll appreciate what one story I did hear about you, and I think this is brilliant, and I laugh at it. It was not at Eldora, but it, you know how you go to Eldora, you draw a number, and they put the number on your car. You know, they tape it to the top of your car. Um, at Eldora, you drew a 71 for qualifying, and you actually cut it in half and flipped it upside down and changed it to 17, and you got, you're laughing. Uh, somebody it, said that. I surely didn't do that. Uh, That'd be cheating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough, you got up there, and the guy was like, you wait. You think Larry Moore do something like that? I, I think he's brilliant <laughs> if he did. I think he's brilliant if he did. I think it was I think it was 91 and 19. Uh, okay. <laughs> You know, I love that. I, I could ask you questions about that. You know, everybody that runs Lucas Oil now or World of Outlaws now, they can really trace all that back to the NDRA, which you've mentioned. Uh, what a friend of mine refers to as a brief window of magic is what he calls the NDRA. Of course, Robert Smalley's famous and really kind of mythical series that started in the late 70s. It was that first high-paying late model series. The first time someone said, hey, let's get all the stars of the sport together, it was, you know, Leon Archer and yourself and Buck Simmons and Rodney Combs and Freddie Smith and Mike Duvall and Jeff Purvis. 
you know, I know you've been asked a hundred questions about the NDRA, Larry, but let's make it one more. Try to explain to the younger fans out there what the NDRA was like, because all they know is Lucas and the Outlaws. Man, the NDRA, well, it was magical. What was it like? Yes, it was really, really different. Roger, Robert Smalley was, he thought he was Elvis Presley. He drilled, he, he dressed like Elvis Presley. He had real fancy, you know, but he was very, very, it was, it was awesome. And he had, he had trophy Queens and they were just awesome. You know I mean? It was, it was just a complete different world than it has been ever since. It was not been any, any, uh, uh, racing series been as as different as what Robert Smalley was in NDRA. It's just quite awesome. Why do you think that is? Why don't you, and I agree with you, nothing's like as mythical. Why is that? Why can't, why hasn't there been something like it? Well, I don't know. He drank a lot and had all <laughs> kinds of sins, but yeah, a lot of women, a lot of, you know, and so, that wouldn't happen. You couldn't. He couldn't have operated in today's world. And that group of guys I mentioned—Rodney, Freddie, Duvall, Purvis—I mean, that's a that's a Mount Rushmore of of racing. You know, I mean, that's you ever look back at that and go, "Holy shit, we were racing against some competition <laughs> every week here." Oh, sure. I I really I really understand that. Yes, I really do. Something. You know, something I, else. I, people. Yep. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I've heard legend, you know, of of those those wild nights on the road during the NDRA and what it was like. You know, this is before camera phones, Larry, and before all this other stuff, social media and all that. Uh, can you give me, you don't have to be terribly salacious, but can you give me one or two good, you'll never believe this happened stories from those NDRA days while you guys were out late at night and stuff? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know about that. Just one. Was, Give me one. Was a lot of them. Yeah, I, you know, I hear crazy <laughs> things like, well, there's this animal, you know, and they had this animal from the zoo. and Just crazy stuff. Like, can you give me one not not like wild crazy, but one fun story? <laughs> well, that's really hard to do. I don't know. I don't I, – I, I wish I could – I wish I could help you right there. I just don't – what well, was way different? I mean, it was just way different back in yeah. in that time. I mean, it, the racing really was, and Smalley was way different than everybody. It was nobody, I mean, nobody. It was just nobody like him. But it's hard for me to explain about Robert. He was just, he was really, really something. You know, we he just had a lot of girls friends. He had a lot of <laughs> queens that worked for him, and and some worked in the office, and just you know, and it was quite. It was just quite different, you know. It was really, it was really awesome and really a wonderful word, world than DRA was back then. Would you guys go, was every night when the races were over, there was a party about every night, wasn't there? Yeah, probably, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and would you go out to, like, local bars, Larry, or where were you guys going? I mean, I just felt like you were rock stars. Were you just going out to the local taverns there? <laughs> Yeah, I I learned way back to to go to um, you know to to stay at at uh, what was it I stayed at all the time, Holiday Inn. 
<laughs> or whatever, you know. And uh, we just had tremendous parties there. And and sometimes it turned into the swimming pool or stories in my book about, you know. <laughs> we just had a tremendous time in the swimming pools. We throwed people in and. You know, <laughs> I think I can fill in some of the blanks. I think from there, you yes. know, and it, it, I think that's you know kind of hits my next question. There's a famous saying in dirt track racing. You know, it's hard to be a good racer and a good family man. And I'll be honest, I'm not a racer, but I'm on the road like a racer, and I even I feel that sometimes it's hard to be a good racer and a good family man or a father. The hours, the lifestyle. Those two things don't often go together, being racing and that. I know you told Dave Argabright your entire life. You said this in the book. You know, you had a devil on one shoulder and you had an angel on the other shoulder, and it was a constant battle. As you reflect, Larry, you know, you're approaching 80 years old. How much did you struggle with that throughout the course of your year, being an elite racer and trying also to be an elite family man, father, and husband? Because those things are hard, aren't they? Yes, they are, and... And I've always believed in the Lord, and my my people were very very religious, and and I wasn't able to do a lot. I just I asked the Lord for forgiveness lots and lots of different times, you know, and uh, but I still did some of those things that I shouldn't have. I mean, I didn't steal and stuff like that, but but I was very close to to cheating, but I never got caught at cheating. I'm very proud of that, you know, that you have to be very very good at in your, you know, in your decision-making to not get caught for cheating. But at, this, but at the same time, we just did lots and lots of things that were very, very uh, unorderly, you know, and, it's, and we got by with them. It's hard, though, to be like, if you're going to be, and Billy Moyer and I have talked about this, and I'm sure you and Billy have talked about it, if you're going to be the best, and, you know, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, you have to sacrifice a lot, and you don't get to spend as much time with your children and your wives I've had to skip in my career a hundred weddings and everything else. That's you, you, it's hard to do both, isn't it? If you wanted to be Larry Moore, the best racer in the country, it was hard to be Larry Moore, the best father and husband in the country. I think anyway. Yeah, that's very true for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was really difficult for me at times to 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 do everything that I did in racing and I did in my life on the road and and everything like that and. uh with wives and girlfriends and all that. So it was very, it was very difficult and enlightening, you know, and what I, I learned a lot to, I learned a lot in those days to, to be very, 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 uh, um, I don't know how to say that, but it's to to be, to, to be very, uh, very good at, 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 right. At, at doing those things without, without, uh, the Lord being mad at me. <laughs> Prayed a lot. <laughs> there you go. You know, you're not only, yeah. we're kind of c- coming up to the end here, you're not only famous for your you know, racing knowledge, but you're very famous for your energy level. It's been said and understood to be true that nobody keeps up with Larry Moore. Dave Argerbright told me when Larry Moore gets in a car, he gets in a car to go 85 miles an hour and try to evade the cops. He's just not getting in the car to ride around. You know, everything in you've done in your life is to the limit. You're 78. Are you still existing like that, Larry? Are you still bouncing around? And is that no? Even- I've <laughs> no, I've slowed down lots and lots. But at the same time, my wife says, 
can you slow down? I said, I'm not going very fast. <laughs> well, I was going 80 instead of 90, you know what I mean? Used to run 90, but now I run 75 or 80. So, <clears throat> yes, to me, it seems like I'm going really, really slow. Compared, you're but still I'm, faster than everybody else, but it feels like you're going slow is what you're saying. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's a personal question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, you, you won a lot of big races over the years. You, you had a, some car owners, though, so you're racing on percentage mainly. How hard was it financially to keep up? And, and, you know, were you able to store some of that money away, Larry, from all your great wins over the years? And I don't think people realize how hard it is to keep doing this financially and make it work. You know, how, how, does, how did you, to, you know, rationalize and work with all that over the years as far as finances go? Well, I, I wasn't very good at saving money, you know. I made lots and lots and lots of money. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, in 1979, now this is 1979, we made $279,000. Wow. You know, but at the same time, I spent money big time. You know, I had a mechanic that I paid for his expenses and everything. But, you know, it was just, it was really difficult to do it, difficult for me to, I just didn't, I didn't really learn to, to save money. So I'm not. You know, I'm not so poor today that I can't, you know, that we're, but at the same time, it would have been a lot better if I'd have saved more money years ago. That's hard, sure though, for, for racers, right? Because you want to be competitive and you want to spend money on your race car, right? Yep, yep, that's for sure. Yeah. Most of the time, I drove for somebody else, but at the same time, I, you know, was very, you know, good at having, well, I had a lot of good help, and I paid some of those myself, you know, yeah. so... You know, but anyway, yeah, it was it was difficult. It was, you know, it was difficult to to do everything properly. I don't know if I have this story exactly correct, so I want you to correct me if I have some details wrong. So I, I have, I think I have part of it correct and part of it not. You were set to run a USAC pavement race at Milwaukee. You were supposed to run for the Pierce brothers, but I think the deal started to fall through. At the same time, Ed Howe gets a hold of you and says, hey, come run the World 100 for me at Eldora. And you say yes. Well, it turns out the Pierce Brothers deal does not fall through, and USAC tells you, no, no, you got to run this race or you're going to be suspended or barred from USAC, and you tell them to stick it, you're going to go run Eldora, and you never run another USAC race again. Do I have the details of that correct or not? Sounded sounded about right. (laughs) (laughs) So was that the last USAC... You never ran USAC again after that. Is that right? No, but they were, you know, they were falling by the wayside yeah. at that time. You know what I mean? They, they was, uh, so it was, you know, I could see the end in, in their doing. So, you know, it wasn't a real big deal. Wow. Yeah, they barred me for it, life, and it was kind of the best thing ever happened to me. So for running the world, Earl should have been kissing your ass. You to run the world one hundred, you got barred for USAC for life. That's commitment to Eldora, Larry. <laughs> That's what yeah. that is. Yeah. Well, Earl, he never kissed anybody's ass. <laughs> oh man, he should have thrown you a bone for that one, though. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, you know, you said USAC pavement late model racing was going by the wayside, but shit, at one point, USAC pavement late model racing was a big deal, wasn't it? It sure was. I mean, you know, I raced at MIS, Michigan, and I raced at Milwaukee and won. In fact, I won Milwaukee and a hundred lapper there, and I won by a whole lap. I lapped everybody. And I won it. We run really good at Texas International Speedway. 
you know, it was faster than MIS. And yeah. uh, it was really College Station, Texas. And yeah. We run really, really good there. Well, didn't Our car was short on horsepower, you know, but it was yeah. really good through the corner. Speaking of USAC, I think there's a story with A.J. Foyt, the legendary A.J. Foyt, where he had left USAC and you were in it, and you ended up with his number, and he was trying to come back, and you had his car number. And didn't didn't AJ Foyt call you a Yankee son of a bitch? <laughs> he called you a Yankee son of a bitch. Is that right? We went to, actually, actually we went to College Station for a big race. Now Bobby Allison was there. He'd come and run some of those USAC style car races, yeah. you know, big ones like that one. Bobby was there, and lots of great racers was there. And anyway. A.J. Foyt, I heard him over there talking to Bobby Allison. Our pit spots in the garage area wasn't very far apart. And he's going over cussing Larry Moore. He's calling me all kinds of. <laughs> A.J. could cuss you out. You know what I mean? He he was very, very, he was something A.J. was for sure. And he was, well, what had happened is, is, um, Paul Pierce from, from GW Pierce Auto Parts, Paul went to Indy. He told me he was going to go to Indy and get a number. You had to go get a number from USAC. Sure. Couldn't just pick your own. You had to go get a number. Well, he went there, and they said, 14 is available. Number 14 is available. I, and, I, and, and, and so anyway, he said, well, I want that number. He said, A.J. Foyt hasn't registered yet this year, so you can have it. <laughs> so they got the number 14 because they didn't think A.J. was even going to race any USAC star car races that year. He ran right. IndyCar. And so anyway, when we got out there, I had 14. And I mean, I could hear him over there his, his, in the garage area. It wasn't very far apart. And he was over talking to Bobby Allison, and he was calling me all kinds of MF. He was Cussing me out. And I walked over and I said, hey, AJ, it wasn't me that did it. It was Paul Pierce. Right there he is. And Paul walked over. He heard the whole deal. He walked over and said, yes, I did it. AJ was, Larry was pissed off because we got your number. And he just laughed and everything. And then it was okay. You know what I mean? He realized it wasn't me that did it. And I was pissed that he did it. I had heard That's he, what happened. I had heard when he was ranting and raving, he said, who's that Yankee son of a bitch you took? My a skinny Yankee. He called me skinny a skinny Yankee. Yankee. That's what it is, yeah. yeah. He called me a skinny Yankee, yeah. Oh, that is, a, that is I mean, that's an all-time story there. Um, yeah. You know, Larry, yeah. you had a second act in racing when you were done driving uh, when Justin Allgaier, he's a dirt racing kid from Illinois, who's gone on to asphalt success. You were his crew chief uh, when he got into ARCA. Uh, side note, Justin and I actually used to do a radio show together when we were teenagers in central Illinois. Um, I honestly, you know, I kind of thought crew chiefing at that level might be a thing for you for a long time. Uh, did you kind of think maybe, hey, I might do this for a while? Because I know you had some success with Justin. Well, yes. I mean, you know, it was really wonderful. But at the same time, I was drinking too much. I was not, that was not really, very really good. I drank a lot of alcohol. Today, I drank hardly nothing. I mean, I even quit for a month, three and a half weeks, I think. But, you know, that's quite different in my life. But it, I just don't drink that much anymore. But there was at times I drank too much, and that was a problem. Well, you know, I appreciate that, your honesty about that. I think that says a lot about you, that you can be so honest about it. So you're saying that time when you were working with Arca and Justin, you just were you weren't in the right head. You were drinking too much. You weren't in the right headspace to make that go. You're saying. That's right. 
Uh, do you, I mean, is that a regret? Well, sure, absolutely, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. I really, you know, I feel bad about that, you know. Not Justin and, and Mike's fault, you know what I mean? But I was just, you know, that was a time in my life, you know, that I'd quit racing and then now I'm crew chief and now I'm getting famous of being a crew chief, but I was still just drinking too much. Do you think, Larry... Why do you think you were drinking so much at that time? Do you, were you struggling with not being a driver anymore? Because I've heard that with guys before. They they drink and they do drugs because it's hard for them. They're not in the car. Was that part of it, you think? Yeah. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I didn't really do drugs, but but I sure drank too much at times. And so, yes, that probably, I don't know, that's probably some of the reasons for it, you know. So here I am, been winning races, winning races, and now I'm crew chief, and and he ain't winning there every now and then. But, so I was pretty hard to get along with, you know? Yeah. I'm, I, I was very, I was very, I was just hard to get along with in them days. Do you think, had that gone different, could Larry Moore have gone on and been a NASCAR crew chief if things had gone different there? Oh, I think so. I really do. Yep, I really do. Did you like? I'd have pursued that. I think I'd have been good at that. Yeah, just because you knew the cars so damn well. Did you? Did you ever see yourself in that role? Like, oh yeah, I know these cars well. I still love racing. I'm a little too old to maybe compete now. Um, I shit. I think you'd have been a hell of a NASCAR crew chief, right? Yes, at times I thought so, but I just didn't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like I said, I was still still drinking too much, and it took me for a while to to get over doing that. And so I think that really hurt my, my crew chief years. Right. Cause when I was racing, I could overcome all that. I just, you know, I just, uh, I just was very good at that. And I, you know, but when, then when I became crew chief, I don't know, I think it, I think it bothered me, you know, that that guy wasn't winning and I'd be upset about it, you know, but yeah. I didn't say nothing. But at times I did, there was a time or two I did and, Afterward, I wished I hadn't said to some of the things I did to him. And you could, I said, "Here, let me get in that." Now, like I was, I was crew chief for Tim Steele. Yeah. And we had a practice session at Kalamazoo or somewhere, and I, I told him, I said, "I want to take a few laps in that car." Randy Sweet is the one that brought it. He's the one that said, "You need to take some practice laps in that car when you're going testing." I said, "Okay." Well. The night before, I put a porta power in the seat and stretched it out a little bit so I could squeeze in there. Yeah, you know the seat was like too small right. for me. So I, I, I put a porta power in there, stretched it out, and then we went to Kalamazoo, and I went fast. And so I finally said, "Let me take a few laps. Let me take a laps in that." And he goes, "Okay, yeah, go ahead. I'll see how fast slow my car will go." Well, I took it around. I went faster than he did. I went faster than he did, than wow. Tim did. And so he he got out of the car, and he got back in it and went out, and he went slower yet. He was trying too hard. You know what I mean? Yeah, slow down to well, go, that, slow down that, to go fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to mention is I've never heard people, uh, I'd get in other people's car on dirt, and I'd take it around a racetrack, and they said it was loose. I watched Bristol the other day and all that, and, it really got me. I've never heard anybody say this. Almost every time, at least 90% of the cars I got in that they said was loose, I'd get in it and they were pushing. Yeah. I'd slow down where I would 
I just worked to go in and around the middle. I just would concentrate on getting in and around the middle. And the car was too tight. And I'd loosen it up. And they'd see me and they'd go, you're loosening it up. Yeah, no shit, just watch. And I'd go faster than them after I got loose enough to drive in and around the middle. Most people on a super light mile dirt car, they don't know if they're sliding the car around or driving it like they should. Randy Sweets, when I brought that up, he said, take that car around yourself. Now, Tim Sneal was a really good race car driver. But at the same time, he had other difficulties. Everybody does in life, but he had a few. But anyway... Anyway, yeah, so I took the car around the racetrack and run faster than he did, and he jumped in it, and and he he looked at the guy's times, and they said, oh, you're full of shit. He didn't go fast. I said, okay. Well, he said, let me let me take it out and drive it around. He did, and he went slower yet. He was trying too hard. Yeah, yeah that happens. You know, i got to slow down to go fast sometimes. Last, last, yes. few, th- last few things I want to ask you. You recently moved back to Ohio. Before that, you were living in a retirement community in Florida. Where I, this is a great story. I understand there was a saying in that retirement community or that neighborhood, I guess. And the saying was, "Just take it to Larry." Meaning, whether it was a weed eater, a lawnmower, a garbage disposal, anything with four wheels, everybody in that neighborhood and community knew. Just take it to Larry, and Larry would, and Larry would fix it. Uh, how much of the fix-it man were you? And what a great fix-it guy to have, Larry Moore, uh, in the neighborhood. What all did you fix, Larry? Well, like I say, I fixed lawnmowers and and all kinds of things: golf carts, cars, trucks. But I was a very, very good mechanic. I've has been for, you know, ever since I was 14, 15 years old. So I, you know, worked. So anyway, it was very, <laughs> very different in a retirement community. And I was working on all those stuff. And that's been lots of years ago. But I sure did. I sure did. Did you, um, were you charging people or were you doing it out of the kindness of your heart? No. Yeah. I did mostly, you know, I did mostly. I mean, I'd have to charge him for the parts I needed, but I didn't really charge him for labor. Yeah, that's that says a lot about you, man. I love that story. Last, we I always end all my interviews with some true or false questions, some fun questions, but I have one more question before that. I want you to mm-hmm. take out a magic wand, and if you could wave it and you'd say, I'm going to fix one thing that I think needs fixed for dirt late model racing, Right now, in 2021, as we sit here today, I'm going to wave this magic wand and it's going to fix it. What would Larry Moore do? I never believed in magic wands anyway, so I don't (laughs) know how to answer that question. If you had the power power to fix something or something that you think could be changed about the cars or about anything, what would it be? Wow. Wow. Should have what? Uh, should have asked me that day or two as I could have thought about what it would have been, but I don't I don't know, Mr. Rigsby. I just I don't know. It's you know, I never was much of a coulda, woulda, shoulda guy. But I dad don't you think I could think of something that I needed to What about the arrow? Fix. Everyone talks the cars are too arrow dependent. I hear that all the time. What do you think when you hear that? Well, my cars was in 79 and 80 and 81 and 82 were all big time aero dependent. Yeah. More so than the cars today. <laughs> we had an 18 inch first floor. They have an eight today. Right. So that's why they're jacking the back end way up. They're trying to make an 18 out of an eight. And the sideboards, 
we had longer quarter panels and everything, so our cars was actually way more aerodynamic than theirs, you know. So I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people just don't ever even bring that up as why they got their cars doing what they're doing. They're trying to make an eight-inch rear spoiler being 18. Yeah, that's a good point. Period. What do you think when you see those guys, those crew members riding around on the back of the cars trying to get them sunk down for the for the deck height measurements? It's, <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Well, they got that all figured out now where it'll let off. At first, when they started doing that, they had problems with that. But now they, you know, they got lots of different shock valving, you know, that really, really helps them. And so when they go out there and, and they just gas it up a little back and the car comes way up and it gets going before they it took a while for them to make that transition so that it would get there at the right spot when they'd take off yeah. sometimes it'd be after a lap or so but it's not that way today they're right. very larry yep. i'm going to end on i got some true or false questions i'm going to ask you these okay. questions and you tell me true or false if these things happened about the life and times of larry moore okay these are going to be fun uh-huh First one, okay. and I really don't know if this one's true or false, so this is why I put it in here. I mentioned NASCAR earlier. Did you almost once have a shot to drive Daryl Waltrip's car? He was sick or injured, and you had your helmet or your suit, and it was all ready to go, and NASCAR came over and said, no, you, you, you can't do this. You need more time or practice or whatever, but DW had you ready to drive. Is that true or false? That is true, and Daryl was really upset about it. Really? Where was it? Yes. Yeah. Bristol, maybe I don't know where. And what hat? What hey? They just said you didn't have enough practice laps or whatever. Well, they yeah, they said you wasn't a USAC driver, so you know that was I was out. You know what I mean? I wasn't I'm not a USAC and NASCAR. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, you know, I come there and went to their drivers meeting. And I listened and listened and listened. And all. I went out there and put my driver's suit on after Daryl come on the radio and said he wanted me to get in there because the cars then they all had they didn't have power steering. Yeah. You know, they had, had manual steering, and, and so they were getting really wore out at them tracks. They didn't know to take some gaster out of it and change that. But anyway, whatever they had. So anyway, which I helped Daryl doing, but anyway, when it come time for me to drive the race car, I got out there and I had my fire suit on, and and the guys from from NASCAR come over and said, hey, you can't drive. You don't have a USAC license. Wow. So that ended that, yes. Wow. So that is a, that, that's an unbelievable story. Do you do you still know Daryl Waltrip at all? Do you still speak with him ever or not really? Yeah, I, I haven't talked to him in years, really. Yeah. But he's, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Second true or false question. I talked about your obsessiveness over race cars. But I also found out that extended to passenger cars, cars on the street as well. Is it true, Larry, that you and Dave Argerbright were once riding around in a car together, and you didn't like how dim his headlights were? And the first chance you got to stop, he looks over, and you got a screwdriver. You're trying to take the headlight plate off. You you were trying to mess with his headlights because you liked you didn't like how dim they were. Is that true or false? Yeah, I can't really remember that, but that sounds like me. <laughs> we'll call it a true. <laughs> Dave's, Dave, Dave goes this. He goes, I look out, and there's more with a screwdriver taking my headlights off, trying to turn the dimness up. Uh, so we're, we're two trues. Uh, third question, true or false? You had a good number of car owners in your career, and the reason you had so many car owners, and these are your own words, by the way, is you said, I'd drive them nuts in the garage because I was so crazy about the car, and eventually the car owner would just have to get rid of me because I'd drive them all nuts. Is that true or false? 
That's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. I wasn't trying to, but that's what happened. Oh, I love that. That's great. Uh, A couple (laughs) more here. True or false, you once completely psyched out Charlie Schwartz. You guys started on the front row together at a race. You walked up to him and said, hey, you're not really going to run those tires, are you? And you and it psyched Charlie out so bad he changed his tires, and then you ended up blowing him away in the feature. Is that true or false? <laughs> Something like that, but it was it was different. He was going to start on the inside and start on the outside, and and when he moved there, when he pulled out on the racetrack, he went one. I go, you're going to start there. Okay, there. I've led every lap at this racetrack, and I start <laughs> and I start outside. So he moved outside, and then I made some comment about. Anyway, he got back on a pole. Well, it wasn't even. It wasn't even close. You know, <laughs> I beat him on the outside coming off that corner. <laughs> uh, I love. And that. he he didn't even he hit the wall. He hit the wall trying to. Oh no, he took the outside. I was on the inside. That's right. Yeah, he, That's he, right. You couldn't you couldn't power off four on the outside without running. He hit the wall and every made it one lap. So I won that race. I love (laughs) that. Final true or false question of the interview. You are a very healthy eater. I've heard. Is that true or false? Well, yes, but, but you know, I was born and raised on a farm. So my eating habits went all the way back to there. Yeah. I ate, I ate lots. Yes. Wow. I don't eat lots today. I've lost some weight. I've heard you're eating oatmeal every morning and you eat more natural stuff. I was pretty impressed by this, quite honestly. I still do that. I eat eat a lot of very healthy foods. I sure do. Well, Larry, the last few things, I I wanted to mention some things to you. These were some words that were said about you before we ended the the phone call. I wanted to to mention these things. Here's some words said about you from, from your very good friends. For as gruff as Larry Moore may seem, he has one of the kindest hearts of anyone you'll ever meet. He'd do anything for anyone. Another friend said, one of Larry's great talents and qualities is that he treats everyone the same. People can say he works a room, but really that's just who he is. He treats everyone from the janitor to the CEO exactly the same, and that's Larry Moore's great quality, his great talent. He's as good at that as he is racing. And finally, somebody said, I don't care what any record books say. I don't care what any numbers say. He is the best race car driver ever, period. No one has ever been better in a race car than Larry Moore. And I don't care what anyone says. Larry, when you hear that stuff, what do you think? Well, you know, I've just not been big at following all that stuff, you know. But uh, some of that could be true, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I was very – I was very – very, very, uh, uh, um, I was very all over trying to do stuff properly. Those are some pretty kind words, though. I hope when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. I hope when I'm 78, people have things like that. I'm not a race car driver, but the other things, I, I hope, I hope people th- say things like that about me. It really shows you've made such a lasting impact on a lot of people's lives, <laughs> I think. Well, thank you very much. Glad to hear that. <laughs> well, Larry, it's been a fun hour, man. I really appreciate it. And um, I think we should do a part two later this year. Why don't we do a part two later this year? What do you think? Yeah, that'd be great, Mr. Rigsby, for sure. Thank you very, very much. And, and everyone, for sure. Thank you. Thank you.
Do you want the deal of the century? I have the deal of the century. If you buy a car or truck from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, new or used, you get a lifetime subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. They are truly the best, most friendliest car people in the truck or buying game I've ever met, and my next car will be bought at Bomb Chevy Buick. Check them out at bombchevybuick.com. That's B-A-U-M, bombchevybuick.com. The best in the business and a lifetime subscription with it. It is literally a several thousand dollar value on top of the car you're buying. Check out Bomb today. That interview with Larry was a little over an hour, and I'm telling you, I could have done four. It's funny to me, too, how similar he and Ronnie Johnson were, the guys I've done back-to-back. And I don't mean this in, like, a, a shitty way, but it's hard to keep those two guys on topic, right? Their memories of things are so vivid that they can drift easily. And you kind of got to steer the direction of the interview a little bit. I, I think he did awesome, and I think we did that. But you get the point. We will never kept, capture everything with Larry Moore um, in an hour. But thank you to Larry. That's that's one, like I said, I think it will call for a part two. I will roll back with him one day, maybe later this year or early next year. I mentioned it earlier this week. We're really excited. The Castrol Flow Racing Night in America starts this week, Thursday night at Tyler County Speedway. 10000 to win. The field is looking really good. And keep in mind, we've got the studio show with Derek and I, the pre-race show that starts 30 minutes before hot laps. It's going to be a lot of fun. I don't want to oversell it, but it's just we're going to have a good time on these shows. It's really unlike anything that's been done in dirt late model racing before, and I'm excited to debut it next week. For our next Rigsby Report, I've got some options, but I'm not sure which direction I'm going exactly. I, I, I might go Cody Summer, the famous promoter of the Gateway Dirt Nationals turned team owner with Scott Bloomquist. Um, he's on my radar to talk to, and it's everything that Scott's got going on. And, you know, we had no Gateway last year. I have a lot of questions for Cody about a lot of stuff. He's on my radar. Not promising that one, but but he's on there. Also, Matt Weaver, NASCAR reporter who now works for Flow. Uh, I'd love to have Matt on, too, and just talk about motorsports in general. Uh, that's an option. So, Flow Racing Night in America starts this week. We are excited. Thanks for listening to the Rigsby Report with Larry Moore. We'll be back soon.